This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back on the show, Dan Pronk. Now, Dan is not only a physician in Australia, but is a former SAS operator as well. So we discuss a host of topics from his two new books, The Resilience Shield and The Combat Doctor, through to trauma medicine, the power of mindfulness, physical fitness standards, mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible second conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I do love reading your comments and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back on the show, Dr. Dan Pronk. Enjoy. Well, Dan, I want to say thank you for coming back onto the podcast. The last episode that we did together was 163, which if my maths are right, that's about three, three and a half years ago now. So I'm excited to talk about all the new projects that you're, you've been doing since, but uh, I want to begin by welcoming you back. Yeah, cheers for having me back. It's uh, long overdue. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Adelaide, South Australia. Okay, that is the only, I think it's one of the only countries I've ever had to really pay attention when we do this scheduling, because not only are you day ahead of me, but it's also on the half hour too, which throws me completely. Oh, look, even within Australia, we've got about three or four different time zones, depending on whether it's daylight savings at the time. So yeah, it gets hopelessly confusing, but uh, we managed to coordinate it. All right. Well, there's been... Like I said, three and a half years, you've written two books in, in the time that we ta- spoke last. You've written a whole bunch of articles. You're specializing on some online classes now as well. So let's start with the book journey, The Resilience Shield. Um, you ended up writing that with your brother as well. So talk to me about the genesis of that book and uh, you know some of the takeaways that you're offering people. So that one, the genesis of that was in my first six to 12 months when I transitioned out of the army and sort of started to to struggle, I think, as a lot of transitioning military members or first responders do. And I I looked at that through the lens of, you know, what, what's going on here? I was, I was safer than ever. I was earning more money than ever. I was home with my family more than ever. But from a, a mental health perspective, I was starting to struggle a bit. I was it was having flashbacks, bad dreams. The hypervigilance was worse than ever. I was really anxious and angry, and and so all these symptoms that fit the the post traumatic stress mold. But it was happening at a point where I was never safer, and I was home, and I was earning more money. So on paper things looked better, but in practice things were worse. And 
it got me looking at what was it that was so protective about being part of an organisation like the Army and particularly the the tight-knit Army Special Operations community, what was making us so resilient? And if we could work that out, then I could rebuild that in, in a civilian form and get back to a resilient version of myself. And so I looked at it sort of through that lens, took a deep dive into all the literature on resilience, what we had proven caused resilience, had a better look at stress and exactly, you know, what, what stress was all about, how it affects us psychologically and physiologically, how, you know, it, it relates with resilience and, and then started to deconstruct all of that to try and get to a granular level on how to build resilience and, and do it deliberately and proactively and habitually rather than wait for a stress event to then try and work out the intervention to get back to a good spot. And so I joined forces with my, my brother, Ben, who was a career uh, special operations officer and another bloke by the name of Tim Curtis, also a former uh, SAS officer. And, and the three of us put together this model of resilience that, that became Resilient Shield and wrote the book around it. Now, I don't know if we had any, a deep discussion to what I'm about to ask you next. This has just definitely been something that as I've been educated through these conversations, I've focused on more if the person is willing to, you know, to discuss this area. But one huge common denominator in a lot of people that did struggle either in their career or transitioning out was, and it's so rarely mentioned, is what happened to us before we even put the the uniform on. So with you having this kind of retrospective um, kind of lens now, have you looked back that far and were there any takeaways for you personally? Oh yeah, look for sure. I think I think, and I suppose it, it's part of becoming a, a middle aged person. <laughs> dare I say that? But but um, and maybe a middle aged man to to reflect and 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 analyze what's happened along the way. And certainly, I've spent a lot of time uh, looking back, particularly on my military experiences, and and making sense as best I can of a lot of them. But yeah, I've cast that lens much further back into childhood, and I know there's a lot of contemporary interest in those uh, childhood experiences and, and and particularly childhood traumatic experiences and how that shapes and molds an individual and and particularly in in first response or military I've, I've, I've read a, a bit of literature there just looking at those psychological influences in youth creating a personality construct that then gravitates towards that family structure of a military or first response organization the that, that certainly wasn't me. I came from a very stable, happy, you know, middle-class family. My parents stayed together. It was not a traumatic uh, upbringing whatsoever. So, yeah, for me, uh, I don't think there was anything of great significance prior to my early adulthood that um, that had influenced in anything psychologically other than the, the usual shaping of a, an adult personality and identity. Now, when you talked about some of the struggles, the hypervigilance, the anger, where was the lowest place that you found yourself and which tools did you personally use to, to pull yourself out of that hole? Yeah, so it never got it never got terribly low. I was never suicidal or, or in, in the real depths of depression uh, or anxiety. I, I, I never got any formal diagnosis and that was more that I didn't seek any professional intervention uh, but the 
Probably that it was a year or two period after I first discharged. Probably it didn't probably kick in for the first six months. And I, I think I see that a lot when I, I talk with others and and observing others' experience. And I think that first period of getting out, you don't it doesn't register that you're out. You sort of still feel like you're on leave from the military and that you're or for me, the military or whatever organization you've discharged from. But uh, then it kind of kicks in, and I think for me, when I started to go and get civilian jobs, it really started to hit home that hey, this is this is it. I've transitioned. I now need to try and be a civilian again. So it was in that first probably six months to two years period that the that that sort of real struggle, that wishing I could go back, but there was no pathway back and and seemingly no pathway forward. Um, a pace of life had slowed down and it felt so slow and frustrating and 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 my I'd lost this identity and this sense of purpose, the the jobs that I first got. When I got out of the military, I was working with good people, but I was on a mine site initially, and it was just so professionally unstimulating and unrewarding. It was so I was I was not getting that that stimulation. So yeah, that period of time was probably the most frustrating. Um, but yeah, it didn't it didn't get to that that really low depths that some do. And I, I think there was a stack of protective factors there. I, I had a wife and three kids that, you know, really strong uh, family relationships there. So thankfully that was a an excellent support. But I think the other thing that played strongly into my favor was the fact that I was transitioning out of the army as a doctor. And so I had this this uh professional skill set that translated into civilian life. So I wasn't physically uh, terribly broken by my service. You know, I, I had a couple of demons that I needed to work through psychologically, but I had this skill that transitioned and and allowed me to earn. I actually doubled my income when I became a civilian doctor out of the army. So there was all these really positive factors that aren't there for many transitioning servicemen or, or first responders. And so I think I, I can see, like, even with those positives, it was a real struggle uh, for me. And I, I also had that the benefit of understanding on a academic level what was happening you know from so I sort of I could see clearly what was happening there was all these positives and it still sucked I can see uh, really clearly that if you were not in such a fortunate situation and didn't have a skill set that translated well into civilian employment that it's a it's a pretty dark hole you can fall into there well firstly it's interesting because I I never got to uh, the darkest of places either and when I look back at my childhood, yeah, there was some trauma. Um, but I think the by pure luck, the environment that I grew up in also gave me an ability to offload that trauma. So, <clears throat> I mean, my farm looked like a firehouse. We all ate around a big kitchen table and there was blood and guts because my dad was a vet. And there's just all these things that kind of set me up to process all that. Um, and it's interesting that you didn't get to that same place. And this is this is what I see as a kind of two of the forks in this conversation you've got the people who i feel more often than not through all these conversations um have got to a very very dark place and usually when you look at their early life there is a real compounding element of their childhood and then you've got the people that have managed to process it you know healthily 
both of those need to have a voice. You know, the one needs to be able to ask for help and, and hopefully find the right people that steer them not only into, well, you were in Afghanistan, that's why you've got these issues, but look much deeper than that. But also like yourself, those of us that have managed to transition through successfully, even though it was a rocky path, need to be the shoulders. We need to be the ones reaching out to the other ones and saying, hey, right now I'm doing okay. So let me help you up and let's look at, you know, our parallel paths. Well, these are some things that seem to have worked for me to process these. Whereas when I look on your path, you weren't given, you know, you weren't lucky enough to have what I had early on. So I think those, if we have those two conversations parallel, then we encapsulate everyone. If we just look down our nose at the people that are struggling, or paint the picture that all first responders and military are going to get PTSD, then we're missing the point as well. Yeah, agree with a bunch of those points. And uh, I've thought deeply on on a lot of what you've said there, and I think that ability to help is is uh, important and it's wired into first responders. I mean, that is how you are programmed to help others in need and, and you know, the... I think it it is necessary, though, to have enough emotional energy yourself to be able to contribute to someone else who is struggling. And and I, I've I've fallen into that situation when I was sort of trying to make sense of my own military experience in those first couple of years out of the military. And I had mates of mine who were were struggling much worse than I was. Some who had been involved in the same incidents as I had others been involved in similar but not same. And and it is intuitive to first responders to want to be there for that person. But what I was finding during that period is, is when I was engaging with these people, I was starting to reach a point where I was starting to make sense of things and get back to a, a better place from a mental health perspective, and that would drag me back. And so it was this horrible sort of situation where I felt this overwhelming uh, obligation, I guess it was, to to those members of my former tribe to, you know, be the person that they could uh, turn to and, and talk to. And, and but it was coming at a, a cost for me. It was I, I would feel flat after that for, you know, sometimes a period of days. And so it's it's really tough. But I think the and, you know, there's that old cliche fit your own your own oxygen mask first before helping others type thing, all this sort of stuff. But I think people need to be very conscious of their own levels of emotional energy and and where they're at. And if you're in a great space and and you're feeling good and and you've you've laid your demons to rest, then yes, you can you can lend some emotional energy to someone else to try and bring them back up. But but if you've just got your head above water or you're struggling yourself, then you're probably not the right person to be helping someone else out and it might come at a detriment to your own mental health. So it's a it's a really tough one because we are we are programmed as first responders to help with those kind of people, but uh, you need to make sure that it's not coming at the cost. If you're not in a, in a good mental health space, you're probably not the right person for that at the time. Yeah, and that actually is, is very pertinent because I've had a, com- a few conversations recently where people have been on peer support teams in first responder agencies and you know, this particular individual knows that person very well. And they're like, they're, they're struggling. They're an alcoholic. They're, you know, insert problem X. And like you said, you know, that can compound an issue that they're already going through. And obviously they can just give some horrible advice to if they haven't navigated their path themselves yet. Yeah. There's a, 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 
a construct a concept called maladaptive co-rumination, which I think is a real trap when particularly first responders within a community that is a tight-knit community that has that strong sort of visceral sense of oneness, that, that really tight-knit social identity. And this maladaptive co-rumination is this process of getting together with other members of those communities and going over uh, negative events. And, and so what happens there is you feel understood. You feel that the person that you're talking to has heard you and, and empathises with you. But what, what most often is happening is you are just ruminating on events. You're going over them. You, you're focusing on the event and reinforcing these negative memories in your brain. And it's often not future focused. It's not focused on processing, finding solutions, doing it better next time. It's just revisiting these past uh, stressful or traumatic events. But the problem is you come away from it feeling good. You feel like you've been heard. You feel like the other person understands you. You feel supported. And so it can feel like you've done something good, but you've actually just reinforced these negative uh, kind of memory pathways. And, and so I think that's a real trap with first response communities because we tend to become quite insular and just discuss things with one another because we know the other people in the community will understand us on a on a visceral level they'll be able to empathize and that is powerful and it also i think that creates a divide between first response communities or military communities and the wider population because the the wider population uh, will not necessarily have had those same experiences to be able to put any uh, visceral sense of of uh, empathy around what the first responders trying to describe to them. So it does create those divides and and sort of further, I think, drives the first response community internally to just bond together and hang out together and and then drives that wedge between them and the broader civilian population in in terms of social interaction. That's something I've talked about recently as well. And again, this is all aha moments from all these conversations with people like you. But I think it was actually a family member of a responder that really kind of made me realize we, if you're, if you're a firefighter and you work in a busy department and you're with your crew all the time, they're actually a horrible barometer on how you're doing because they're in the grinder with you. So your children, your spouse, your parents, whatever it is, which are obviously in the civilian world, even though they're in a responder family, are a much better um, you know, perspective on how you're doing than through your own eyes or through your partner's eyes. Absolutely right. So I think we lose sight of the fact that the the family members, the friends outside of the military, outside the first response community, that is what normal looks like. But we normalise our own experiences and our own groups, and 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 that's that's a just a, a function of social identity theory and identity fusion. That's what happens. You end up in these tight knit small groups that you normalise your. Uh, experiences and exposures. You look left, you look right. Everyone else is having the same experiences as you, doing the same things as you. So that becomes your new normal. But what you don't realise is exactly what you said. There is no barometer. There's no sort of compass to guide you back to what normal is. You're all in this bubble and it's often on a downhill slope towards uh, you know, <laughs> mental health issues, but you don't realise that you're free falling because everyone else around you is free falling as well. And and so it's, it's I think it's crucially important to maintain those ties with 
communities outside of your work community, but it's equally as important to understand that they won't be able to understand your exposures at work or empathise with you on that level and don't expect them to and don't hold them accountable when they can't. I think that's a trap I fell into, particularly with my wife, when I started to let her know a little bit about some of my exposures, I could see she didn't get it and it, it frustrated me. It was I, I took it personally. I felt initially like she was some somehow diminishing or trivialising these experiences that to me were the the you know biggest experiences of my life to to date. And it took me a long time to realise that it's not that she didn't want to get it; she just couldn't get it. I was trying to tell her about stuff that she had absolutely no prior experience herself to be able to tap into any true empathy uh, for what had happened. And so it's, it is it isn't that they don't want to understand, it's just that they simply can't and, and don't expect them to and don't hold them accountable uh, for not showing you the, the empathy that you feel is warranted based on your experiences. Well, you mentioned normal. Something that um, I found in myself recently is I think a lot of us post-deployment, post-fire you know, fire service career, whatever it is, we're trying to pick up the pieces and put them back together again. And I realized, and I heard again, this is from, from someone else mentioning this, that I was chasing the 25-year-old James Gearing normal and got kind of like the, the normality was, well, I'm going to turn back time. I'm going to you know go back. 20 years and I'm going to be that person again. Have you had any perspective of chasing uh, the fallacy of normal versus maybe trying to figure out what the normal is post-career? So the healthiest version of who you are today versus the young man or woman that was uh, you know, standing on that draw ground before they ever deployed? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's human nature to, well, I guess maybe it's a it's a bloke thing to try and hold on to that youth or revisit that youth. But also maybe uh, our only reference point is the pre-service civilian version of ourselves, whatever that looks like. And often that's a, you know, a teenage, late teenage or early 20s version of ourselves. Certainly something that was useful to me, but it took me oh, years after I discharged to realise is that some of the the values that I held so tight and the beliefs that I that I knew to be true in the military version of myself just weren't serving me well as a civilian. And this was something that that it was a, a bit of an epiphany. It's just like, hang on, I need to evolve here. I'm I'm still trying to be the military version of myself in a civilian environment, and it just it's not appropriate. And so I need to shed a few of these these values. And I, I love this concept of of evolution as a person. Uh, you know, the the kind of metaphors of snakes shedding their skin and and moving forward. I, I love this. This concept of, of every cell in your body turns over at a certain rate. So, you know, over a course of, uh, I don't know what the exact time period is, but every single cell in your body is different to what it was five years ago. And, and yet we hang on to this psychological construct of who we were in the past. But, but I, I like this idea of, of evolving, becoming a new version of yourself. And in among all of that, uh, you know, it, the term softening is probably not the right term, but but shedding some of my old values and fixed firm beliefs that served me well in the military really helped me 
to to reintegrate as a civilian. I realised they weren't serving me well. But in among all that, I, I also found that I was still trying to thrash myself physically like I, I used to in the military into my 40s. And that was another thing where it was it, that, that's the exercise regime I'd always done. And it just wasn't working. I was just breaking all the time and 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 all these sort of things. And so and I, I had another epiphany. It's like, well, wh- well, what are you doing? What am I training for? I'm a 45 year old bloke now. It's I'm not a 25 year old training for SAS selection. I'm a 45-year-old. I need to soften this and, and yeah, keep fit and keep, you know, healthy and flexible and all that. But I don't need to be deadlifting 200 kilos. And so, but letting go of that old identity is difficult. You hit on something. I'm trying to remember what it was that I was... Oh, there we go. <clears throat> um, so, you talked about, um, well, you touched on some of the key things that I've heard mentioned a lot when people struggle to transition. You have the, the triad, the sense of purpose, um, the the identity in you know the soldier, the firefighter. One of the things that I've talked about recently and the analogy I've used as the yin-yang is another compounding element appears to be the the facade of masculinity, what I would call toxic masculinity, being the two-dimensional first, you know, the version of a man. So I know the ochre male in Australia is kind of a thing too, you know, that the manly man. Um, but I realized that it is kindness and compassion that sends men and women into these professions to risk their lives to protect complete strangers. But especially in the in the male side, it appears that somewhere in a lot of these people's professions that the journeys into it, if the yin the yin I think is the hard and the yang is the the soft, we become a uh, what would it be a white circle rather than a yin and yang. So we lose that softness, we lose that compassion towards ourselves, towards our our crew, towards the people that we serve, and then you come out the other end, and that identity now that that disc. You know, you've lost all, all softness. What is your perspective of the way that you and I, our generation, the way that masculinity was portrayed? And have you seen that as an issue in some of the male um, soldiers and responders that you've worked alongside? Yeah, unquestionably. And the what I've 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 I love the concept of I don't know if you've come across Carl Jung's uh, concept of the the shadow, this uh, sort of darker side of our personas, and 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 actually Jordan Peterson has elaborated on that in a more contemporary fashion with this concept of if you're in a monster, and he talks about it's not about kind of suppressing the monster, it's about becoming the monster and then learning to to tame it, to harness it. And I think there's a real power in these philosophies, be it Jung's shadow or Peterson's monster. I think when you step into first response world uh, organisations and you start to operate in that world and you get exposed to these critical incidents and and these situations that are really abnormal. And I think for a lot of us, certainly myself, I, I found that I I loved it. You know, these these horrible situations on the battlefield or in Ford Surgical Teams where you you had these really damaged individuals and and being able to be involved in the energy of those situations, to be able to be challenged in a, a life or death type scenario for me was the the greatest stimulus 
and and then you find yourself in in scenarios where most most people won't find themselves in you know use of force scenarios use of lethal force scenarios and and so i think all of this ties into that either the shadow or the monster it's becoming this other version of yourself that would not be socially acceptable in any other context but if you spend enough time in those environments I think you can learn to love being that version of yourself and and that can be quite conflicting when when for me when I came home to a young family and you've you've been 6 months in Afghanistan being this completely other version of yourself that has no place in broader society it um it's it's quite conflicting you sort of think well who am I how is it that that I could have been that guy or you know done those things that that seems wrong so there's this this conflict that I think most people uh, look at as a negative, as as if something in them has died or they've, you know, morphed into something. But when you look at it through the lens of Jung's uh, psychology of this, this shadow, that's just the shadow version of yourself. We all have it, but most people try and repress it and and dismiss it and ignore it. And Jung encourages us to embrace the shadow but then, and it is part of you, it's part of your person and you need to acknowledge it and say, yeah, that is, that's the shadow version of me. Here's the, the conscious version of me. But then he looks deeper than that to your point on losing your empathy and becoming cynical and, and becoming cold and, and this toxic masculine picture. And so beyond the, the shadow, uh, Jung talks about this anima and animus, which is the, the anima is the feminine side of a, of a man. And the animus is, is the masculine side of a, a lady. And, and I think, and, and Jung's, Jung's version of a complete person, my interpretation of what Jung's saying is you need to integrate your shadow, embrace it as part of you, but then also integrate for a bloke, you need to integrate your anima, which is this female version of yourself, which is, is typically characterized by compassion and, and empathy and kindness and all this stuff that we tend to not, um, display or demonstrate in worlds like military and first response it's very uh, masculine no weakness no sympathy empathy just crack on type thing and but jung's version of a complete psychological construct is embracing the shadow and also embracing your anima or your animus and and so i think there's a real power in these models to apply to first responders i think one of the hardest groups to talk about mental health are the men and women that have bought into that facade a little bit. And to me, the the way to get your foot in the door in those conversations is on the performance side. Um, so I'd love to get your take on this. What I've kind of learned so far is, and this is through, ironically, more sports athletes than, than responders and tactical athletes, but when they are trying to get into the flow state in the sporting world, they need to have stress, they need to have repetition of their skills, but they also need to have a calm mind. So if you have trauma that you brought into the profession or you've accumulated through your profession and your mind is busy, you're not able to get into the flow state so that you can operate at the highest level, whether it's with a weapon or with a fire hose or whatever it is. What is your perspective of addressing trauma to be able to perform at a higher level while still on the job? Yeah, look, I think the, I mean, that, that's there's a lot to that. Uh, the 
Talking to your point of trying to make this stuff relevant to organisations and individuals that don't see the relevance in some of what's perceived as the softer side of of what we know to be human performance. But I I think a, a lot of a lot of times when I'm engaging with military or police or first responders or even uh, I do a bit with elite sport uh, teams and and trying to broach the topic of mindfulness and meditation as a human optimization tool can often just cause people to to switch straight off. They're like, no, nah, that doesn't apply to me. And and I think there's this misconception that those those things like mindfulness and specifically meditation are synonymous with passivity, that they will make you passive, that you'll lose some form of competitive edge or in in uh, occupations where you might need to use force up to and including lethal force, that you'll become softened and you won't be able to use that. And, and so I sort of look at it as a bit of a a Trojan horse, you need to lead with things that are culturally relevant to the organisation you're dealing with. And so presenting the evidence, well, I like to frame the discussion around cultures like the samurai, I think is a great example, and and a a particular swordsman, Miyamoto Masashi, who was a, a very devout Zen Buddhist and used to spend a lot of time in meditation, but then he'd go out and and sword fight and kill his opponents. And and so, you know, just to frame a bit of context about this, this doesn't make you passive. It actually optimizes you under high stress and and then lead into the science about how it changes your, your brain's response under stress. It shrinks down that fight or flight response over time, shrinks your amygdala and, and strengthens connections between your prefrontal cortex and your amygdala and basically frame it in this makes you a better operator in acute high stress environments but also reduces your chronic stress load we know that people who practice mindfulness meditation have lower cortisol levels they sleep better and what you don't tell them uh, it reduces pain perception is another positive so you know this will make you better in acute high stress potentially use of force situations it'll make you more tolerant to pain these are the things you lead with but in packaged in there is, and guess what? You'll have lower rates of PTSD, anxiety, depression. You'll have better interpersonal relationships. But you don't lead with that because a 22-year-old soldier couldn't care less about that stuff. But if you tell them this will make you uh, more pain tolerant, make you better in high stress in environments, you know, that's relevant to a, a, a young operator in whatever organisation. But, yeah, I think that's there's there's a real... Uh, cultural disconnect in in the the Western world between mindfulness meditation and these sort of I, I use the term warrior culture pretty inclusively, but but cultures and organisations that need to operate in really high stress, high consequence environments. So, in the mental health conversation, this is kind of one last topic before we um, move to the the next book. More often than not, there's this, we need to change the stigma conversation. Sadly, I think where people trip and fall is, okay, where do we find help? That's the issue, I think, where there's a big barrier to entry, whether it's financial, whether it's simply finding a culturally competent clinician in your area. Talk to me about the optimistic side. I mean, the book is called The Resilient Shield. So post-traumatic growth and performance, you know, what are the what are the things that can inspire people that there is hope, not just, oh, I'm going to fix the part of me that's broken, but how you can actually emerge from this even stronger than, than you, you went in the first place? Yeah, look, I, I think that, I mean, the whole underpinning premise of the Resilient Shield model is 
be deliberately and proactively building resilience, ideally ahead of a stress event. So this is this is deconstructing resilience down into its granular form and then giving you tools across what we call the layers of the resilient shield model. So and specifically the modifiable layers, areas where you can proactively build resilience deliberately, you know, habitually. And, and that's your, your mind layer, your body layer, your social layer and professional layer. And so the ideally, this is a tool that's used by people who are not yet struggling with, with demons or mental health issues, but it is equally applicable to both to be able to come from a state of, of poor mental health back to baseline but it's also aimed at people at that baseline in these high-stress, high-consequence roles or across the board to be able to build that resilience ahead of the, the stress event. And so the I think resilience is a term that's been done to death. I think we all know inherently what it kind of means to us, but when you try and define it, it becomes a bit murky. It's hard to put words around what resilience actually is. There's no agreed upon definition in the literature. And then to take that a step further and say, well, how do we build it deliberately? Uh, then that's, that becomes even more problematic if you can't even define this construct. And, and so that was the, the, the premise of the resilient shield project and the model. We've, we've scientifically validated it. We got a federal government research grant. We put together a survey that sits on resilientshield.com. If anyone's interested, you can get your resilient score and, and look at your subscores across the layers. And we've published that data. So this was another thing that was quite important to us to, to prove it. You know, a lot of people are, are talking about, you, you know, do this, you'll become resilient. And we, we sort of looked at these models and they're probably correct. But we, we, we asked the, the question, well, how do you know, you know, if you can't quantify and if you haven't done the, the science? And, and so we, yeah, we, we did that. That was important to us. But looping back to your question, sorry, I get, I get a bit carried away. <laughs> Go for the, it. <laughs> a lot of, and we, we refer back to a lot of stoic philosophies in the resilient shield model as well. And one particular, one that uh, that I think is relevant to to this discussion is it's a it's a little chunk out of a Marcus Aurelius quote, but it's get active in your own rescue. And so basically, I think that it's there's certainly a lot of uh, you know a lot of support that you need if you're working your way through some stressful events and traumatic events. I think you can tap into different people and services for different things. But I think at the core of it is that style philosophy, that get active in your own rescue. You need to be proactive and deliberate. And and I know that's difficult, particularly when people are in a, a dark place. But even if it's small, uh, habitual things moving in the right direction across those layers of the resilient shield model, looking after your mind uh, as best you can, a bit of mindfulness, maybe a bit of meditation, practicing gratitude, optimism, internal locus of control, these sort of things, just trying to improve that. Once again, I know that's difficult if you, you, you're in a dark mental health space. Your body looking after your sleep, diet and exercise, particularly sleep, we don't do well and, and alcohol is often an offender there in terms of disrupting our sleep patterns. The social, making sure you're maintaining those social ties and then professional, making sure you're trying to engage in, in your professional space and working on your purpose and your virtuosity at work. And so all of this stuff is uh, we know causes resilience 
and we know you can be chipping away at it, getting active in your own rescue, but then tapping into other support elements. So, you know, maybe your, your, your tribe or your former tribe for that empathy and sympathy, but watching out for that maladaptive co-rumination. But, you know, you can get that visceral sense of understanding from your tribe that's powerful. People outside your social network, outside of your uh, work, knowing that they won't understand you on that that visceral level, they won't understand your stress, but often you can be your authentic self in front of them. Often you have to keep a bit of a facade up at work. You have to kind of maintain a work role, but hopefully you've got people in your life you can be vulnerable and you can really drop your guard and, and spill your guts and cry in front of. That's the power of that social circle outside of work. And then the professionals. So often I think first response organisations are uh, suspicious of mental health professionals and psychologists. They see them as the the ones who want to take their badge and gun or want to stop them from deploying or stop them doing the job that that ironically is the very job that's damaging them <laughs> to, to need to have that professional help. But but uh, we, we need to embrace the psychologists and tap into them, knowing that they 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 won't empathise. And I think that's a big barrier to seeing psychs, like they wouldn't get it. But and yeah, sure, no. Once again, don't hold them accountable for that. But they have the professional tools. They're the ones that can help you uh, break out of those maladaptive rumination loops and start to move forward to make sense of situations and purposefully be future focused, solution focused and move forward. So tapping into those three groups, but at the core of it is that individual and that requirement to have that internal locus of control and get active in your own rescue. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that perspective. Now you (laughs) talked about changing the way you train i know early on you were you know, wanted to be a, a triathlete as a profession then you transitioned and just so chose something easy like sas <laughs> so then you progress through your deployments um i'm 48 now um and i'm realizing that i'm probably about as fit and strong as i'm ever going to be unless i happen to choose and focus a specific area that i wanted to push but i just like juggling all the wellness you know areas and, and staying kind of rounded in my ability and so for me personally, I realize that mobility is probably the biggest bang for my buck now. And I'm not there yet by any means. But what have you changed as far as, you know, as you get into the middle age, as you're not, you know, you're not thinking about jumping out of a helicopter anymore. I'm not thinking about running into a burning building at, at this moment, at least. How have you shifted that to to maybe steer slightly away from performance a little bit more into wellness? Yeah, I, I- I've got a blown spinal disc, so that made a lot of decisions <laughs> easy. The um, So that sort of stopped. I, when I got out of the military, I started doing a, a lot of Olympic lifting, uh, quite poorly and not big weights, but I, I really enjoyed that challenge of throwing weights around. And it also fit my lifestyle really well at that point with young kids because I could put a lifting platform in the shed and just throw weights around at, at home, you know. So whereas if, if you're out riding a bike or running, you, you have to go out and it's it's hard when you've got young kids. And so I started doing a bit of that, but this this um, bulge disc just <laughs> just kind of started to flare there. And and so I backed right off on that. And, and rather than at that point, I was still trying to chase these goals. I was setting myself these goals and which for me were were ambitious some out there will laugh at the idea of 
you know, uh, deadlifting 200 kegs as being a ambitious goal, but I'm a 70 kilo bloke and, and uh, I wanted to get a hundred kilo clean and jerk. So I was sort of, I still had these goals. And this was around that point that I was talking to earlier where I realized I still had that military mindset of setting goals that for me were ambitious and working towards them. And it started to become clear that this was counterproductive. I was just injuring myself all the time. The, that my spine was was uh, not what it once was, and and it was it was heading down the pathway where I was going to need to to get this uh, disc operated on because I was chasing these these goals that I'd just set myself for no other reason than that's what I always did, and and so that was a, a good turning point and and uh you know i went and saw this surgeon he said yeah we can cut it or you can just stop doing dumb shit and so so i went with the ladder and and started doing a lot more yoga uh those sort of things the flexibility piece uh, I, i've tried a couple of times to get into running running's a real passion of mine and was always through my my teenage years i was a middle distance runner and had some success with that through the triathlon running is something that i absolutely love but i found that unfortunately trying to build up mileage again as a 45 year old I, my calves don't hang in there so i mean I'm, I'm, I'm listening to my body more and more doing a lot more stretching yoga the the big changes for me i've got right into cold water immersion so i've got a an ice bath in my shed and i um i i have an ice bath pretty much every day and i also have a, a sauna so i can bounce between the the sauna and the ice bath and and so i find that really works well for me i find a ketogenic diet works well for me so being in keto uh, ketosis really i feel reduces my systemic inflammation I, I feel much better and also my energy levels and and it's great for weight maintenance as well so yeah the cold water the, the hot cold type stuff the keto intermittent fasting is another thing that seems to work really well for me and and more and more uh, meditation actually i'm finding is has been a real game changer for me well first is funny i've never met anyone that says i want to do a 97 pound clean and jerk or a you know 417 pound deadlift there's always they always round up to, to figures i think that's what people get in trouble with if you actually progressively work until you kind of just hit that ceiling and go okay that's my lift but sometimes when we're, we're chasing, it's always a fucking round number every single time. And usually it's that round number that's, that's that last, you know, 10% that breaks them. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think there's, uh, I think I've, I've gotten better at this, but constantly moving the goalposts. And I think this is a, a just a byproduct of, of maybe the, the personalities that gravitate towards first response, military, whatever it is, you know, you set these goals and then you hit them and you're like, okay, we'll just edge that further forward. And and so there is no, there is no finish line there. And, and you, the, the only time you're going to end is when you've, you've pushed past what your body's capable of and you've broken yourself. And, and so, yeah, we're never, never satisfied with these goals. And I think it's, it's that's been another mindset change to come back and say, hey, you know, the goal now is is be a, a fit, healthy, flexible, happy version of yourself. That's a you know, I, I need to let go of these 
these goals, the physical goals particularly that I, I used to have uh, because they were super ambitious. They were, you know, elite athlete. They were Army Special Forces. And that's that's not where I'm at right now. I need to soften that right down to to be let's stay healthy, maybe run a half marathon here and there if my body will let me, but not try and win the thing, just go out and compete. And so just a softening of that mindset. Have you ever heard of a movement practice called foundation training? No. Okay. So when I was uh, – God, how long have I been on? Probably about 10 years into the fire service. I had a near career-ending back injury. And it was doing something, as always, you know, that's totally non-heroic. I was just picking up a, a, basically an anxiety patient, putting him into the back of the rescue because that's, you know, they wanted to go to hospital. Um, very long story short, kind of hyperextended my back a little bit. A bunch of ligaments, uh, not snap, but tore. Um, and I had all these bulges and couldn't move. And went through yeah the initial thing which was they just want to throw meds at me and i refused that forced them to do pt so i went to pt i paid for a chiro out of pocket and on that journey i discovered this thing called foundation training it was a, a chiropractor who he himself was a personal trainer and as you talked about early lifted way too heavy incorrectly and messed up his own back was about to have surgery, realized, well, hey, I can't really be a chiropractor if I've got a big scar down my spine, so maybe I can need to figure out something else. And he developed this system, and it kind of looks like yoga, but it's it's very different, but it's literally just these poses, but you only do it for about 10, 15 minutes a day, that's it. And mm -hmm. it literally went from my recovery being like a 10-degree triangle to 45-degree on the graph. It was absolutely amazing. Um, so foundationtraining.com, I urge you to look that up. It was phenomenal. And he's worked with Kelly Slater. And, uh, I was going to say Neil Armstrong. I don't think he worked with him. Lance Armstrong, um, all kinds of the you know, elite performers, including, um, you know, some Royals and actors and all kinds of people. But I have, I swear by this. I mean, I, I don't do it as diligently as I should, but it's not only fixed my back that time, but when I fell off the wagon, had a little tweak, jumped back on it again. I watched it work yet again. So I urge anyone listening, if they've got any back issues, to at least try that first. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'll, I'll give that a look. I'm always open to, to new ideas. And I, I think with a lot of this stuff, it's it's about what works for the individual, isn't it? And it's I think we we can get a bit fixated on one thing and people have a great result with one thing. But, yeah, in, in terms of what I've found is – is give these things a go, see how they work for you. And if it's good, stick with it. If not, keep looking for, for something else. Absolutely. Well, just when you talked about cold weather immersion, did you do any comparison between cold cold water, uh, not cold weather, cold water immersion on its own and the contrast therapy between the cold and the sauna? No, I, I really haven't done any. Well, I, I guess I have in effect because I, I, the sauna was newer to me than the the um, ice bath. So I've been ice ice doing the ice bath for years now, and just got the sauna about oh, six or twelve months ago. So uh, yeah, I, I I do have that comparison, and I found that uh, particularly in winter in in Adelaide. I mean, you know, we can't whinge about cold winters compared to the northern hemisphere. Don't don't me wrong. I'm, this isn't a this isn't a sob story. Poor me, but but uh, <laughs> our winters get down around zero Celsius, so down near freezing point. Once again, I know that that's that's nothing compared to some other people's winters, but. I found with the, doing the the ice baths in winter, 
I just found that I, I couldn't warm up again during the day. I'd walk around with uh, with sort of numb hands and feet and and just be chilled all day and just this mild state of hypothermia. And it, it became a real disincentive. But uh, I find with the sauna in the cold weather, I can have my ice bath, get that um, that effect, and then can hop in the sauna and, and just get that blood flow back to the peripheries uh, near immediately. And so, you know, from that regard, I think it, it works much better in the colder months. The, uh, But, yeah, I... I I, I didn't do any kind of formal like look at what what works better for me, and I'm not sure what metric I'd be tracking anyway, other than just how I how I feel. So yeah, not sure. I know there's a lot of studies out there looking at at the effects of of cold water therapy, looking at the effects of of saunas and the combination of the two, uh, which there has got like so many of these things. There's a bunch of mixed. Uh, data out there and outcomes so but for me uh, it, i think it works uh, really well yeah i mean i'm not you know well versed in this area i don't have access to either or but i mean i've i've been to facilities once in a while that have both and physiologically i totally understand the thinking behind the cold water immersion but then when you ask the body to go the other way you know you've gone from con- contraction to um, dilation in, in many of these areas in the body it makes sense to me that if you're asking it to go from left, right, left, right, you're going to get even more elasticity from the whole physiological response than if you just do cold. Yeah, for sure. And the, all of this stuff, to my understanding, is underpinned by the, this concept of hermesis, which is this this pushing your body outside of its normal physiological reference ranges. So it's a very controlled application of a stress that that left too long would be a lethal stress. And so be that sitting in an ice bath, you know, your, your body on a, on a physiological level doesn't know that, that, that this is a safe environment that you're going to get out. So it, it, for all intents and purposes, thinks, hey, we're, we're in this freezing cold water here. We are going to die unless we we mobilise ourselves to be able to get out of this. So it's firing, it's dumping a bunch of stress chemicals into your system, a bunch of adrenaline, noradrenaline, uh, you know, dopamine, serotonin, these sort of things. It's just flooding your body with all of this stuff as a, a bit of a fight or flight response. But if you're doing it in that controlled fashion and just these metered doses, it's it's a good stress. And then the the sauna is no different. You know, if you stay in a sauna at, at, at 75 degrees Celsius, I don't know what that is in, in Fahrenheit, but um, if you stay in there for, for any prolonged protracted period, you're going to die as well from heat stress. And and so once again, your body is firing these appropriate responses to mobilize stress hormones and chemicals and done in a controlled fashion. I mean, breath holding is a, is another, uh, you know, static, static sort of breathing tables that free divers use. I, I like to, to use some of those breathing techniques. And, and that, that's yet another. I mean, that's throwing your, your carbon dioxide and your oxygen levels outside of reference ranges once more if left too long uh, will be lethal and and has those effects so yeah it's all underpinned by that hermesis and and certainly the hot colds to to your point there's some interesting stuff around the cardiovascular that just that that kind of violent contraction that you get of your all your blood vessels in the cold and then that dilation there's some you know, thought that that really contributes to your cardiovascular health by almost exercising those blood vessels deliberately. 
Absolutely. Well, speaking of medicine, I want to shift to your newest book, The Combat Doctor. So, again, what was the genesis of writing your biography? And, uh, you know, if you want to kind of give people an overview of what that book is, you know, the the, uh, the stories that are within those pages. So that book is is basically tracks my 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 life to date more or less so it covers a bit of my childhood growing up with my older bro who was always destined to be a soldier from the earliest days and and went to the defense force academy Duntroon, army officer sas selection career sas officer ended up commanding officer of that unit so sort of grew up with this older bro as that influenced my dad army helicopter pilot and and I went in a very different direction, but then kind of looped back around and and almost fell ass backwards into the army uh, in my early twenties uh, to study medicine. And it just tracks my my career through uh, everything that led up to getting into the army. My time with regular army, my first deployment with regular army, then then doing SAS selection, which had been this goal for six seven years of mine getting through that, moving into special operations. But it's really centred around my uh, tours of Afghanistan and particularly the second tour where we started to, our task group started to have blokes killed and and I, I responded on multiple occasions to these teammates of mine who I couldn't save. And, you know, these really fundamental, pivotal experiences in my life professionally and personally. And then, you know, two more tours after that, similar sort of exposures in those, and then discharging and trying to negotiate that transition back to civilian. So that's the sort of broad brush of what the the story in The Combat Doctor is. The genesis was actually after my second tour of Afghanistan, where I'd responded to three of my teammates and and uh, couldn't save any of them, and I'd, I'd gotten back and I was I was wound tight and I was a bit fried and and in my um, the mandatory post op uh, psych debrief that I was just unloading a bit on the psych and and she said to me, "Have you thought about writing this stuff down as a way of trying to f- organize your thoughts and process some of it?" and uh, that really resonated. I, w- I went away and, and wrote in great detail the all the stuff around these three particular events and found it very useful, found it very cathartic and to fill in some of the blanks that had been were not were not uh, kind of in among the memories that were coming back to me of those events. and and that's a that's a human thing around trauma. We focus on just the the isolated traumatic event without any broader context putting context around it is a very powerful tool to be able to start processing it and making sense of it. And I didn't know that at the time, but that's what the psych was getting me to do. And so that was the first chunk. And I found writing cathartic. I started to write a bit more around my story. I kept writing over the years. And that was so the genesis of the book started as that, as this cathartic psychological exercise to process the deaths of these three blokes and then built everything around that. Then it sat on a hard drive for eight years, uh, and it was, wasn't was till last year that the time was right, I felt, to revisit it, give it a really heavy edit to redact all the stuff that that just wasn't appropriate and uh, and put it together as a more holistic story and, and put it out there. I wrote a book about two years ago, and 
I was blown away as I wrote. And it wasn't a biography even. It was really, you could say it was a collection of short stories. Each one was a story from my life or my career. But the point was that there was a takeaway then, you know, nutrition, fitness, sleep, um, mental health. Um, but once I started writing, it was like all these boxes inside my mind started opening up and calls that I'd forgotten about. And one thing that I've talked about here before, I was in a house fire when I was four years old. I became a firefighter. I'd never put the two together because by the time I was an adult, I'd forgotten about the fire. So I start writing and like, well, shit, <laughs> I could have gone one of two ways. I could be terrified of fire or I want to be the person who helps. And that's what happened. As you were writing, you know, whether it was the, the, the therapy time or, or years later, did you, as alongside that catharsis of simply writing, did you find yourself surprised by some of these memories that were being unlocked? Yeah, maybe not so much surprised, but but certainly I got a lot of of clarity around things. I, I haven't yet, and maybe I need to do a bit more searching. I've I've certainly got a, a lot of people in my social circle that 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 really uh, swear by that revisiting key moments along your pathway to to be clues and and cues as to why you translated into the adult you are, but. The, uh, the the greatest thing for me was was that catharsis of putting structure around these isolated uh, traumatic memories that were kind of pinging back to me and and being able to have them as part of a broader story that made sense as opposed to just boom seeing seeing something uh, again that I'd experienced or you know, flashing back to a tiny snippet of what was actually a 48-hour mission, you know, and, and if you can frame those things in the broader construct and 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 writing things down is, I mean, we know it's a, it's a really powerful tool to be able to, to physically uh, connect with a, a keyboard or even better, handwriting. I, I don't uh, do enough of that, but I do do a bit of journaling. But, yes, yeah, so I didn't have any of those key epiphanies as to how I came to be who I am today or these formative childhood memories, but it certainly was was hugely beneficial in making sense of the context within which these these little individual snippets that were returning to me occurred and and helping to contextualize them and process them. In 14 years as a firefighter and ultimately a paramedic, I think I'm the only person I know in the entire first responder community that never had a code save. So I had, I just was that black cloud. I had the GI bleeds. I had the, you know, cerebral aneurysms. I had all the things that no matter what you do, you're not going to bring that person back. And I, of course, saved a lot of people, you know, me and my, my team, that is, saved a lot of people that were pre-codes and those kind of things. But once you went in cardiac arrest, if you'd seen James Gearing right before that, you were fucked. That's basically what happened in my career. So when you look at the way that we're trained... If you do A, B, and C, then the person is going to get up, give you a hug, and bring a birthday cake to, or bring a cake to the station the next shift. And then you go out in the real world and you have loss after loss after loss. There are a lot of negative emotions about that inability to save. Now, you talked about not being able to save three teammates. How, how did you process that? I mean, what, what were the pros and what were the cons of the journey that took you up to that point and then, you know, what you used after? Well, one of the one of the big things for me that that I was immensely, after the fact, grateful for was within the 
within our Army Special Operations Medical Community, we had a really robust training pipeline leading up to deployment. And, and part of that was these sessions with other medics, uh, medical elements who had lost people in the field. And it was these closed door sessions where it was a, a no uh, sort of punches pulled rundown on what happened, what it looked like, what it smelled like, what it felt like, what what you need to do in this situation when you've just had a teammate killed and everyone's looking at the the medic saying, you know, what now type thing. Uh, so I had the benefit of those sessions before I found myself in that situation. So I, f- I found that to be really useful. And indeed, in our training pipeline, we would regularly have these often mass casualty scenarios where the casualty did notionally die. And so it was sort of this, I think we can set ourselves up for this illusion of of saving everyone if we only train to to be able to, you know, save, oh, well done, you know, you shocked them twice and they came back around or you've stopped that bleeding or they, if they always live in training, it, it might create that false sense. And you don't want them to always die. You, you know, you don't want someone <laughs> sort of being down to the point that you need to think about that contingency and you need to, have some mental framework to be able to to deal with that. So that was that was really uh, important for me. I think the being uh, training to the the nth degree, and so be, training your your core skill sets to that point of unconscious competence. So really kicking the ass out of reality based training is essential to be able to have those skill sets there for you on the day in these very complex environments. And so thankfully. I when I responded to these these teammates of mine, and to be fair, you know, one of them had been he'd been killed instantly with hindsight. It was a more a body recovery operation. Uh, two I worked on uh, for a period of time, and the thankfully. I can look back and and realize that my sequence of response was appropriate. My interventions were appropriate. I know from the autopsy reports that my interventions were uh, successful in terms of their technical success, things like surgical airways or needles into chests or those sort of things were, were in the right spot. Uh, the the thing that so I guess I can I can reconcile in my mind that I, I went through the sequence that would have given this person the best chance of surviving if they had a survivable injury, and then I think the real thing that allowed me to get some degree of closure was looking at at things like the autopsy reports and realizing that that injuries were unsurvivable, and so. I think that those things, having a mental framework before the fact, building into your training scenarios, the the contingency that someone is going to die and having being prepared for that, then training your core skill sets to that point of unconscious competence so they'll be there for you on the day or give you the best chance of that. I think to turn up to these scenarios and and not feel empowered to act, to have that freeze response or not have those skills available to you would be difficult to psychologically reconcile. And and then, you know, if you go through your process and you're beaten by the injury, then then that's something in my mind I've been able to uh, kind of package up basically and move on. Because I think the only area that we can control really in the first responder community is the level of training. And I've, I've talked about this before. You know, if you 
have trained, com- you know, trained diligently and you lose someone in a fire, you lose someone, you know, in an ALS response and you know in your heart of hearts that you did everything you could, there's definitely a level of peace with that. And I think it would haunt you if you knew that you were just, you know, clocking in, clocking out, you know, doing the bare minimum and you lost someone and you knew it was really your fault. But what we don't have is the closure. I mean, we'll take, doesn't matter what the call is, the moment that we've offloaded the patient, you know, we have to clean the rig and, you know, hit the button and we're back in service again. So we never really get to know sometimes even what the outcome was, but certainly did, you know, was the tube successful? You know, as you said, did I, did I decompress the chest properly or did I kill them? You know, and you really, that's really left untold. So that's up to, you know, like I said, the control of that one area. Did I train diligently or did I not? Yeah, and I think tying into that is the need for after-action reviews, whatever that looks like. And that doesn't need to be a full-blown, formalised two-hour process with with a dozen people, but just not not just having these critical incidents. And, and often at the time, you just got to keep rolling. The machine keeps churning. And, you know, you know this. You can go to a horrendous job and, and then there's an, another fire to go to an hour later and you've got to go to that. The, the, and that can be quite protective in a way. I found this quite protective in uh, Afghanistan. We, we might lose a bloke on a job, but yet I'm out the next day on another mission. So you've got this distraction. You can keep moving forward. You can kind of run from these demons, if you like. And, and that's good to a point, but they're not going away. You need to revisit that at some point. And, and try and make sense of it with a, an after-action review. So have a good uh, sort of without emotion, have a good reflection on what actually happened to generate an accurate timeline. And that then fills in that. That's That was like for me writing this stuff down was the first time that I really looked at, at the timeline from start to finish of the mission and, and was able to put perspective on those those little incidents that I was fixated on. You know, looking at what went well, even in the most catastrophic of situations, there's going to be some positive points. And and as I said before, the it took me years to to look at the positives in these what were profoundly negative memories of mine. And they were things like successful surgical airways, you know, intraosseous infusions, the, the list goes on, decompressions of chests and finger thoracostomies, the, these sort of things. There was some real positives in there. They didn't have a positive outcome, but the individual interventions were were positive under really complex uh, scenarios. So, so force yourself to look at those positives and reinforce them, but then you do need to look at the negatives as well and, and do a root cause analysis. So try and work out Keep asking why until you get to the root cause of what went wrong. And if there's something there that that can be done better next time, train towards doing that better next time. And and so, you know, there's a real power in revisiting these events and doing a balanced after action review, reinforcing the positives, putting context around the negatives, and then where possible, asking yourself critically, was there a deficit here? And if yes, then how do I correct that to do it better next time? But too often we we don't because we're too busy and we're moving forward and it's easier not to. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for that perspective. I want to throw something at you because I don't think I asked you this back then. I think it's a newer question. Um, it's also an interesting perspective because you're not in the US. Here in America, we get a very polarized um, reporting of war. It's it's either, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're all a bunch of baby killers. 
And in the middle are the young men and women, or more often than not, young children, basically, that we send off to these foreign lands to fight, you know, with our, our flag on their shoulder. Um, it's a two-part question. At any point in your career, regardless of the politics that physically sent you to that place, was there a moment where you realized, whether it was atrocities that you witnessed or whatever it was, that you realized that there were some terrible people that needed to be taken care of, like I said, regardless of the politics? When you say taken care of, <laughs> I mean you can interpret that however you want. Yeah, the, the, perspective or from a <laughs> bigger category. <laughs> Look, I, I was pretty philosophical about all of this, to be honest, and and relatively emotionless about the. I, I had this this uh, respect for the the enemy, whoever that may be. I was always aware that. From their perspective, we were the enemy, and and had this this overall view of I, I accepted that that I was part of a, a military that was a, a an instrument of government that if if the government said you go you go and so I went you know I wanted to go to to war that was the the goal I, I was like a lot of young soldiers uh, you know that was the the goal of my military service was to see if I could get over to these environments and use my skill set, test my skill set in a really complex environment. But I never I never felt any any real sort of hatred towards the enemy. I, if anything, there was there was some some empathy with them. They were often young men fighting for their cause uh in in really sort of complex environments and and their their utilization of things like IEDs and some of their tactics which don't fit the Geneva Convention and and create this different set of rules we're playing by you know if you are disadvantaged from a military perspective to the degree that they are they they don't have air superiority we've got drones and apaches and whatever else they, they, that's just textbook guerrilla warfare they need to play to their strengths and and they did it well so there was a degree of professional respect uh for the enemy i i had no issue on the the times and and there was only a handful when we when we had incapacitated enemy but they um they were still alive i had no issue treating them to be honest uh, even in the scenario where they might have been trying to kill me and my teammates moments before uh, that that always came really naturally to me i never even thought at the time of i didn't have any emotional response uh to doing that so so i guess no, there was no real uh, sense of of these are evil people that need to be removed. Uh, you know, they was very happy to be part of that construct that went and did this this job. Uh, but my main motivation was to try and and be in a position to use my skill set in that complex pre hospital space for. Well, well, you know, selfishly for my own professional challenge and satisfaction, but more so for the hope that it might be life preserving to one of my teammates. So that was the that was the basically the fundamental motivation of me wanting to be in that role. It was never about removing bad people from the battle space. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that mirrors the response I got from Staz and Louis from ThruDark, British uh, SAS, SBS. So, yeah, different perspective than some of the American voices. But again, it also depends on what was seen with those eyeballs. Conversely, the other side of the question, I mean, you were part of the kindness and compassion. I mean, you just talked about treating a, an enemy soldier. 
you're in these these landscapes a lot of these are you know the middle of combat a lot of these you know are, are people being repressed by by the the uh, extremists in their own land were there moments of kindness and compassion that struck you amidst this chaos that you were amongst oh yeah for sure and i, I think more than the the kindness and compassion was just the the resilience and human spirit and i've seen this in developing countries around the world and particularly in the kids, you know, they grow up in these these horrendous environments. There's this, there was this constant stream, unfortunately, of civilian trauma coming through the Ford surgical team that I used to spend time at when we weren't out and about on jobs. Often kids getting blown up because they were found a device and they were playing with it and it initiated. But but just the you know the kids were always so so happy but they had so little you know they had they had nothing by our standards yet they were they were always brightly dressed and happy and and you know engaging and curious and running after our cars if we we're on vehicle vehicle missions and you know chasing our water bottles and all this sort of stuff so i think just that that human spirit was what really struck me and even in the the adult population just the living in the the harshest of environments that are, you know, boiling hot in summer, freezing cold and covered in snow in winter, the the challenge of just surviving in these environments, let alone with this decades of war going on around them, I think it's it's super inspiring and, and puts a, a massive perspective on the comfort that we have in a in a developed country and in these sort of cushy first world existences looking at at things like the marketplaces in somewhere like Afghanistan all this rotten fly-blown meat and and rotting food and whatever else and we go to our markets and and you won't you won't choose an apple because it's got a tiny spot on it you know it's 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 just this perspective and this recalibration i think is the biggest thing but that that human spirit it was just so powerful i think these people that have so little and have endured so much and live in this mega hostile environment but maintain that that human spirit it's inspiring well again thank you this is exactly what i'm talking about you see you don't hear these different perspectives on at least the the american news and i think it's important for us to hear all these different things there's there's some there's terrible atrocities that people have witnessed and you know they've they've lost you know people right in front of them and there's also these incredible moments of kindness and compassion by the people of the countries that we're in by the men and women in in uniform and it's so so important that we hear these human stories otherwise it's merely statistics yeah it can get a bit lost and and i appreciate the requirement for media to to create a narrative that allows the local population to support their troops going and doing this this work and and even military constructs there's there's perhaps a, a bit of a requirement to dehumanize the enemy because if you see them as too human it might um it might be very difficult to engage in use of force and use of lethal force but i think trying to keep a, a counter perspective a bit of yin and a bit of yang there that that these are just people that have grown up in a different environment they've been programmed with a different set of values and philosophies and and that they are counter to ours and and 
you know, ultimately, who's who's to decide who's right and wrong? It's a, it's a you start to get into a pretty existential sort of uh, conversation there. But but yeah, I, I very much was able to maintain that perspective that that we're on this side, they're on that side, but they are just young men fighting for a cause that they believe in and are willing to die for. And I think there needs to be a degree of respect for that sort of dedication to a cause, even though it is not one that's aligned with my values. So I want to get a trauma medicine, but just one more perspective, because I don't think I've had it from an Australian soldier, certainly not a special forces soldier. Um, you lost multiple friends, you multiple fellow, you know, operators in Afghanistan. We had that very clumsy withdrawal at the end of, you know, the, the campaign. What is your perspective of that without loading the question in any way? Yeah, look, I mean, ultimately heartbreaking. But when I kind of thought deeply on it and um, I tend to, it sounds a bit airy-fairy, but I tend to meditate a lot on on these sort of things that I now feel are affecting me on an emotional level and, and that was no different. And I tried to look at it through the lens of, of uh, once again, locus of control, feeling like I have the ability to influence the outcome in any given situation and and. I think it was, uh, is it Steve Coleman? I might be getting that wrong. The the author of, of the uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People uh, might be butchering that book title. Anyway, he is talks Stephen to the- Pressfield, have I got that right? Oh, I don't think Pressfield. Anyway, okay. yeah, people, people out there listening would be screaming it at us at the moment. But, <laughs> I'll look uh, it up yeah. while you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> but he talks about these these spheres. One is your sphere of control. And that's stuff you can absolutely control and you can be held accountable for and you should be, you know, your thoughts, your responses, your behaviours, your actions, uh, these sort of things. Radiating out from that is your sphere of influence, as the name suggests. You can't control it, but you can influence it. So these are your, you know, people around you in the workplace. This is your family and friends. You can try and have a positive influence on those uh, situations and people. And then outside of that is your sphere of interest. And that's stuff that that affects you. You're interested in it because it's relevant to you, but you cannot control it and you cannot influence it. And this, this talks to a lot of the stoic philosophies of letting go of these things that you cannot control or influence. And, and so I, I looked at this through that lens. So when I was in Afghanistan, I, I absolutely did my very best to try and have a, a positive uh, influence on the the environment that I could influence, which was pretty small. But, you know, I mean, I, I did my best to do what I could to try and positively impact both my task group and, and the local national population. Uh, I could put my hand on the heart and say that. Being back in Australia, out of the military, watching that go on was heartbreaking, but I was able to view it in the perspective of that exists within my sphere of interest. It is something that I'm interested in because it was something I was involved in, but I can have absolutely no control and no influence over it. So I need to try and distance myself from a visceral emotional reaction to what's happening now because it's completely outside of my control. It's just going to cause stress that I can do nothing about and that's counterproductive. So as as cold and callous as that sounds, I tried to really limit the emotional energy that I was giving to that situation just out of the acknowledgement that there was not going to be a solution. I couldn't find a way through that. It was just going to burn me to the core if I let it. And so I did my best to to let it go. 
Well, firstly, again, thank you for that perspective. I mean, I'm not in the military, so this is a you know, civilian's you know question, basically. When I've talked to a lot of the the special operations community, specifically the Green Berets, with them being more of a kind of diplomacy role as well, the kind of force multiplier, there seems to be a resounding um, common denominator in the response, which is if they had been king for a day right from the inception of this, they would have preferred to have sent some special operations you know operators in there early and quickly and aggressively you know, take care of the training camps take care of some of the key figures and then get out as quickly as we could from an australian sas perspective if you could redo the whole thing not blaming but me from the outside looking in you have to be an idiot to not understand that there is an element that the longer we're at war the more money certain companies, you know, are going to make. So there is, a, you know, uh, from one from one side there is pressure to maintain war. From another side there is pressure to stop war. What would be as as a as a leader? How could we have done it differently to maybe change the outcome? Whether it's the actual ultimate outcome or at least minimize the casualties that we got over twenty years. It's a good question, and, and I honestly don't have an educated opinion uh, on this one at all. I I and and somewhat view it as as ignorant, but I never concern myself with the the strategic politics of the positions I found myself in. I didn't think that that was my place or even my entitlement. Which I know there's 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 people out there who are going to say, "Well, that's ignorant." You know, you're toddling off to these wars, and yet you're not even considering what underpins them. But I guess it, to, to the point of that sphere of control, influence and interest, the, the decisions made in, in that, at that strategic level, uh, in that sphere of interest, at, at my level as one soldier with one task group that went to Afghanistan four times, I, I didn't have any control or influence over that. And so I, I, I did pair that right back to what can I control, what can I influence and that was my own training, uh, my ability to project forward and my my skill set to try and preserve life at point of injury. And that was pretty much where I left my consideration of my involvement in Afghanistan. I didn't concern myself at all with the strategic position on, on any meaningful level. And, and so I, I don't have an opinion. And I'm, I'm so aware, as you are, as most listening will be, that that the information that we are privy to, uh, even within the military with the top secret security clearance is very limited, let alone the information that ends up in the open source media. And so it's so hard to, to be able to make opinions there. Uh, yeah, of course, there's companies that that profit from being on a, a you know, a war footing. Uh, and, but yeah, uh, coming full circle back to the question, I'd, I don't know. I really don't know. I think much uh, much better minds than than me need to apply themselves to that question. Brilliant. Well, I mean, that's a great answer in itself, and that's what I love these conversations. So, talking to speaking of the battlefield trauma medicine experience that you had, carrying it over to today in the civilian world, and obviously advising the tactical populations. Um, I know you've got an online course on gunshot wounds, so I'd love to explore that. I know you wrote a piece on blast injuries as well. So talk to me about the lessons learned from the battlefield that you're now carrying into the first responder professions, medical professions, and beyond. 
Yeah, so the the course as we speak, that gunshot wound course, I'm just finishing it up, and it'll go live. Uh, hopefully, by the time this airs, that'll be will be up and running. And and that's just the the net sum of of these experiences over the years. I, I came to reflect and realise in in Australia, we thankfully we don't see a lot of gunshot wounds in is coming through the emergency departments and and if we do it's often low velocity obviously we have much tighter gun regulation than in places like the US and so we're not seeing that that uh, ballistic trauma particularly not the the high velocity uh, type ballistic trauma that you might get in the US and and so it occurred to me as I, I went along and reflected on my experiences particularly from Afghanistan that I had this somewhat unique uh, for an Australian doctor, perspective and experience in uh, gunshot wound and blast, and so I, I, I put all that together in these presentations, and initially had delivered them a lot to closed audiences of either other soldiers, uh, police, police tactical groups, uh, ambulance. I spent a bit of time over in New Zealand. There was a, a shooting some years ago over there. A guy had used a. a um, semi-automatic 556 and and so I went over there and did some stuff with the paramedics over there in the aftermath of that and and this so I've had this kind of these case studies and and this information just informing people I, I feel that that the wounding profiles of gunshot are, are not really taught in any of our medical systems I certainly didn't learn anything about it as I went through and and people are quite interested by this and and what to look for and particularly the temporary cavitation of high velocity gunshot wounds that can create a lot of damage distal to that that tract of the bullet the permanent cavity these sort of things that just the the fact that high velocity projectiles entering in and, and potentially fragmenting you know potentially ending up distant to to where they entered I, I talked to a case study of a a guy we saw who was shot in the the upper outer thigh and we pulled the bullet out of his diaphragm and it had shredded his intestines on the way through this sort of stuff gunshot wounds to the neck and causing the temporary cavitation once again stunning the spinal cord and causing traumatic brain injuries you know these secondary consequences of of high velocity gunshot wound that aren't immediately apparent and and so I've built all of this into this online course as a bit of an educational tool and very much aimed at at the first response community, and it, it's not it's not a, a super deep dive definitive guide on every different ammunition type and how it behaves. It's it's generalised. This is what a low velocity handgun injury typically looks like. Here's what to look out for: stepping up to high velocity, looking at shotguns, these sort of things. So when in the US, obviously, we do have a lot more um, of those injuries. I mean, I through my career, that's one thing I saw over and over and over again. You know, we have the the push now for tourniquets. We have, you know, the the wound packing. Are there any kind of innovations in this space that maybe in the first responder community were a little bit behind that you're already using in, in military, especially in the special operations medical field? Oh, the big advances there were the, and, and they're, they're old news now, but the, the tourniquets or tourniquets, we call them tourniquets in, uh, in, in Australia, but, uh, arterial tourniquets and the, the hemostat hemostatic dressings, the, the, the quick clots and the evolution of that through to the combat gauze. Uh, this, these sort of things, some of the, the uh, decompression needles for tension pneumothorax, but I think it's, it's more the, the, the 
the procedures and the sequences and the algorithms that 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 changing of perspective which was as i understand it the catalyst was that that battle of the black sea or or the the black hawk down incident where the us special operations had that that big night fighting in in um mogadishu there and and lost a number and the reflection of that looking at well hey you know civilian paramedic uh, type interventions in the in the military environment or in the combat environment don't work and that was the genesis of that whole tactical combat casualty care TCCC movement and and so i think that that has which has led to this this promotion of the use of uh, early use of arterial tourniquets of, of these hemostatic dressings and and all the rest of it so i think it's as much advances in the sequences and and these more tactical uh protocols for for care under fire and and uh, tactical field care this sort of stuff as the developments in the kit but if i had to pinpoint one bit of kit that i think is is the uh, most life-saving, it's the arterial tourniquet. Just quick, cheap, easy, easy to train and saves lives. Now, what about um, blood replacement? This is something that's very hard for us at the moment. You know, it's in the, the pre-hospital area. I just had a guest, Joe, who is or was the, the chief veterinary officer for NASA, and he was part of, and I'm blanking on the name now, DARPA, I think it was, and they are given a huge budget to basically try and prove crazy crazy ideas either disprove them mainly but maybe some of them actually end up being true and one of them was if i if my memory serves me right i think it was a a blood that didn't have a type that was a universal uh, synthetic blood that they could use in the first responder field when i was early in my career it was just you know fluids and i always wondered okay fluids don't have red blood cells how is this working and as we've seen this trauma medicine progress that we realized that yeah we were basically diluting what blood they have left what about that in in the in the hospital space in the pre-hospital space where do you think we're going to go with the ability to replace lost blood in some of these you know um, whether it's a shooting whether it's a blast injury or just another traumatic event yeah, look, I mean, it's it's replacing blood loss with blood is the the gold standard. There's no question, and and certainly in the civilian hospital setting, trauma setting, they they've got well established massive transfusion protocols, and the the military setting as well. Once you get to those field hospitals, but pushing blood further forward and blood products further forward is certainly something that is being addressed and is actually being done quite well in the military context. So during my time in Afghanistan, uh, we would routinely carry units of, of O-type blood, so O-negative or O-positive, whatever we could get our mitts on. The challenge was to keep it at a, a cold enough temperature in the field, but but on pretty much every mission we'd go on, we would have a couple of units of blood so we could start some early transfusion. Uh, as as I went through my time with um, the army and kept rotating through Afghanistan, they started to be able to push blood forward on the the dust off helicopters, the medical evacuation helicopters, the the PJs, so the the pararescue guys and girls had had that much earlier, but they moved it to the the, the broader dust off community and so we we were using blood in the forward setting we, we also had the capability although it was it was in a, a an undeveloped sort of stage to do fresh whole blood transfusions so to be able to pull a unit of blood 
out of one person and transfuse it into another. And there's a lot of discussion again about that. I mean, we're looping full circle. This was something that was pretty commonplace in the the Korea-Vietnam era, and we've moved away from it, and and now we're moving right back towards looking at this because, I mean, to replace blood, you want fresh old blood. Packed red cells are great. You get the red cells, but you don't get all the other bits and pieces, the platelets, the other goodies that come with fresh whole blood. Uh, and so, you know, there's some complexities with fresh whole blood transfusion, of course. But, yeah, all of these these discussions are alive and well. I was at a, a um, military trauma course just a few months back and, and got a presentation by one of Australia's leading uh, people in this area and it, it was fascinating to see the advances in this discussion from a military perspective so uh, I suspect that will then flow on to the civilian I'm not sure what groups like um, London HEMS are doing maybe you're better in tuned but but uh, I know they're doing some amazing stuff in the pre-hospital space but whether or not that's transfusing just yet I'm not sure well, one more area I want to hit on before we go to some closing questions that, again, is is very likely, certainly in the U.S., but also in, you know, some of the countries that don't have a lot of firearms is blast injuries. A lot of the terrorism has been explosions. Um, I just actually had one of the police officers who was assigned to the morgue after the 7-7 attacks. I mean, just awful, awful story. So, you know, we have our normal traumas, whether it's, you know, falls or car accidents, then you have ballistic trauma in the U.S. especially. But the blast injuries are an area that we're pretty, you know, uneducated on. I had one firefighter who's a SWAT medic, Jared Alden, on talking about this a little bit. What are some of the idiosyncrasies with blast injuries versus the other um, traumatic injuries that you've seen? Yeah, blast is is interesting in that when you look at the wounding profile of blast, you, you can deconstruct it into these different areas. And, and I mean, it's an academic exercise in that they all happen at once. But you've got this, this primary blast injury, which is this pressure wave that goes through a person. So it's all other things aside, when you have a high explosive charge detonate, it generates this massive overpressure and that pressure wave moves through a person. The secondary blast wave is is the shrapnel that gets spat out by either the device or something that the blast wave has picked up. So that's kind of like a shotgun with these high-velocity projectiles that have their own kinetic energy and behave like a bullet, like a, in their own terminal ballistic way. So it's like getting shot by a shotgun. You've got this tertiary blast injury, which is blunt force trauma of big items hitting you or you being picked up and hitting something blunt. So that's that's characterised like a car crash or a fall from height type injuries, often with fractures, blunt force trauma. And then the quaternary blast injury is everything else. That might be uh, inhaling fumes, it might be burns from the flame from a blast, it might be, you know, even up to and including transmission of a bloodborne virus through something that goes through a person who's infected and then lodges in another person. You know, there's everything else that comes with blast, the fumes setting off an asthma attack or setting off a COPD patient to have a respiratory problem, all of this sort of stuff. So, I mean, you've got this whole spectrum of injury, but I think the, the certainly secondary and tertiary blast injury are, are pretty obvious and burns from the quaternary piece are pretty obvious. They're external. You can see them. You can find them on x-rays or CAT scans if it's fractures. But 
the one in my experience that can be a, a bit harder to appreciate is that primary blast injury and that pressure wave that goes through. And, and the particular one that, that I've found can catch you out if you're not looking for it is blast lung. So as that pressure wave goes through the chest wall, it slows down as it goes through the tissue of the chest wall, the muscle and the bone. But then as it hits the lung into lower density tissue, that pressure wave accelerates again and it imparts energy at that transition between tissue and lung. And then when it hits the back of the lung, it slows down again and once again imparts a lot of energy. And so you get the, this damage to the lung that sets off this inflammatory response that develops over hours to even days after that blast exposure. And so that's a, a real insidious one, that blast lung. You need to be thinking about that, looking for that. Other hollow organs uh, are susceptible to the same thing. So your stomach, intestines, your eardrums often uh, can pop with a blast exposure. And that's a good one because you, you you need to look in their ears. And if they've got a blown eardrum, that should raise an index of suspicion that they were close enough to this blast to have a significant primary blast injury. And so you need to be thinking about the blast lung. So, yeah, that's probably the the one thing that I think is easily overlooked in these situations. And, and even if someone hasn't been directly exposed to all the other stuff, and a, a great example from Afghanistan, where a kid that I saw had been in a car that hit a big device and the mum had been cradling the kid and the mum had been quite damaged by shrapnel and had a big spinal injury. It was a really sad story, actually. But the kid was was didn't have a scratch on them or might have had a tiny scratch on their forehead, was physically externally uninjured, but that blast wave had passed through the mum. The mum had shielded the kid from all the shrapnel. She'd taken all of that, but the blast wave had passed through mum, through the kid, damaged the, the kid's lungs, created this blast lung that unfortunately developed over a period of days and, and she she died. You know, She got worse and worse respiratory distress, Oxygen levels started to drop, intubated her, started ventilating her. The pressures got up and up and up to the point where the, the pressure required to ventilate her punctured both her lungs. So chest tubes go in and the whole thing developed and she she died several days later. But great example of this blast lung that externally no evidence at all that this child had sustained a significant injury, but it was a life-threatening injury that uh, unfortunately claimed her young life. Well, first, yes, tragic, tragic story. But I mean, what's a great way of illustrating what you're talking about? And I can say now as a paramedic, these are, I'm learning stuff literally as I'm listening. We don't have the ability in the field usually to scope the ear specifically. What would be some other telltale signs of, a, of an actual ruptured eardrum? Would it be the, the, the deafness or there's any things that you can kind of advise a paramedic that might cue us in to, ah, this person may have been, you know, close to the, the explosion and therefore have this kind of percussive effect? Yeah, certainly. I mean, bleeding from the ears is an obvious one. So that's something you don't need a scope to have a look in. The just the, the asking the person if they they can pop their ears, you know, and, and getting them to try and do that. I remember on one occasion there was a, a couple of our guys that were quite close to a, a blast. Actually, there was a, a four-man team and, and the guy who initiated that blast was was one of the the teammates of mine that I responded to who, who didn't make it. But the other guys who were in proximity, one took a, a decent hit of shrapnel, but the other two that were a bit further back, they didn't get any any shrapnel injuries, but that that massive 
primary blast wave, that blast injury had had hit them, and they both had these popped eardrums and and but they didn't they didn't tell me the buggers they they like any textbook uh, special operations soldier they won't they won't tell the doc when they're uh, when something's wrong but I, I remember seeing one of them just moving his jaw around and kind of doing these ones obviously trying to equalize his ear and that was what alerted me to the fact that there was something going on and it it, it triggered me to have a look in his ear and indeed he had he had a, a blown eardrum on the side that had been exposed to the blast and and then did his his pulse oximetry, his oxygen levels, and they were a bit down. They were down in the low nineties from memory, and and it's that sort of got my my spider senses sort of going. That hey, we probably need to evacuate this bloke, but he looked physically fine. But yeah, you know, just asking him, is your hearing all right? Often it won't be after a blast anyway. But that can you can you pop your ears? And if they if no, or they're trying to really equalise, moving their jaw around, they're all indicators that that there might have been a, a um, perforated eardrum from the blast. Brilliant. Well, one more thing as as we pertain to explosions that has become more prevalent recently is the conversation of TBIs, you know, whether it's the breachers or whether people were, you know, close to an IED, being mortared, whatever it was. And again, it's those invisible wounds. There seems to be a growing discussion in some of the the military here, especially the the special operations organizations, as we're losing a lot of people to suicide, and they're realizing that is a contributing a factor as well. Is there as much of a discussion in Australia regarding that particular element in you know, law enforcement and uh, you know the military side? It's it's slow moving and it's not as uh, I'm not as aware of it in uh, Australia as I have been aware of it in the US. Uh, that said, I'm not really plugged into the communities that would be having those discussions, so it might be going on. But um, but yeah, I mean certainly there is a level of awareness, but uh, I don't think it's as developed as in the the US. And we I mean we were onto it when we were. In Afghanistan, there was periods of time where we wore these little blast gauges to to register our blast exposures. Unfortunately, that wasn't always uh, complied with because people worked out that if their blast gauge registered red, then they'd get sidelined for a few jobs. <laughs> and so, so not not everyone was was as eager to. So the data might have been a bit skewed, is what I'm trying to suggest there, but. But certainly there was an awareness at that point as to how that conversation's developed. I'm not really sure because I'm not plugged into those circles at the moment. But, yeah, certainly uh, it, it is good to see that there is this awareness. I think we're very um, – we go looking for the blast injury and the, the TBI in those people who have been in close proximity to a big blast, and that's that's something I think we've done well for a long time. But this, this emerging – trend of looking for these these the damage this brain damage caused by these subclinical blast injuries from your breaches or firing your, your heavy weapons and and i know in the american football community there's been a lot of interest around that that repetitive concussion head injury type piece knocks to the head and so it is good to see that it's it's really complex isn't it when you look at the the overlap between PTSD type symptoms and TBI type symptoms and then the exposures of a lot of these military operators uh probably particularly the special operators as to how do you tease one apart from the other and and you you know there's probably not a an answer to that but I think at least an awareness that TBI might be a contributing factor to some people's 
presentations. It's not just all uh, mental health. There might be a physical component influencing that mental health and then maybe having some other treatment modalities for TBI as well parallel to whatever's happening from a psychological perspective. So I think there's real progress there with awareness, but, um, yeah, not not sure exactly where we're at in Australia with that discussion. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Um, so we've talked about the Resilience Shield, excuse me, the Resilience Shield and the Combat Doctor. Where can people find those books? So in Australia and New Zealand, they're in the, the bookstores. You can get them hard copy. Unfortunately, our publishing contract was limited to Australia and New Zealand for hard copy. Now, with Resilient Shield, if you, you really want a hard copy internationally, you can hop on our website, resilientshield.com, and you can you can grab one there. We'll post it internationally. Uh, Combat Doctor, uh, same thing in bookstores, Australia, New Zealand. But internationally, you can get both those books on audio books. So they're both on, on audio and ebook. So you can get them worldwide on uh, audio and ebook through at your Amazons and wherever else you you get your audio and ebooks. Brilliant. I just want to throw a couple of closing questions at you before I let you go if you've got time. Sounds good. Brilliant. All right. So we talked about your books. Are there any books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, look, I, I think... Well, for me personally, there's there's been a few. So for anyone interested in the the military medical side, particularly the the special operations piece, there's a book called Knife Edge by a guy called Richard Villa, who was a, a British SAS doctor around the time of the Falklands War. And that's that's got personal significance for me in that that was the, the first book I came across, the first bloke that I came across when I was looking towards being a doctor with RSAS who had done what I aspired to do and 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 I connected with him and have stayed connected with him. But that's, that's a, a great book but probably has more, you know, personal relevance uh, than, than uh, anything else for me. There's been a couple of really good Australian military uh, autobiographies written. Once again, I know these guys, so maybe that influences my opinion on them, but there's one called Survivor by an ex-SAS guy called Mark Wales that I think is a really balanced and no bullshit uh, account of his experience of, I think he did 10 plus tours of Afghanistan. It was up there. So he had a, he had a really uh, sort of significant military career with the SAS. Uh, once again, Mark Donaldson has written a book called uh, The Crossroad or Crossroads, I can't remember, but uh, one of those two. So he was a Victoria Cross winner for Australia and again, a guy I know, and so that that might influence my appreciation of of that book. But another no nonsense, not sugar coated uh, story, and and quite a, a, an amazing one. He had a really dysfunctional upbringing, and then was one of these types who ended up in the army as a to try and get away from all, all that stuff almost, and and then went on to be an SAS trooper and and win the Victoria Cross, uh, which is our it's our Medal of Gallantry. Uh, uh, sorry, a Medal of Honor equivalent. It's the highest award for acts of gallantry on the the battlefield, and and so that one's a pretty powerful story. 
And then I'm, I'm going to throw this one out here because this one caught me completely off guard and I'll cut the long story short as to how I got this book, but it was given to me by a 15-year-old kid who came to a presentation I did with his dad and I met this kid, I gave him a signed copy of Resilient Shield and he sent me this handwritten note with this book that was called uh, A Voyage Around the World uh, no, the, vo- the voyage of the catch-a-lot around the world in search of sperm whales. Completely random. It was written in the, the late 1800s uh, through the eyes of a 20-year-old bloke on a whaling ship in the, in the 1890s. And it was captivating. Absolutely amazing. It sat by my bed for months because I thought I'm never going to read that. That's something I would never pick up. Uh, in in a, a moment of boredom, picked it up, read the first page and was hooked. It was just incredible. So uh, there's one for you, well out of left field. Brilliant. I've never heard that one mentioned before. There's several of them. I think I want to say that you talked about Crossroads last time. So that means I need to reach out to him. Um, there have been some incredible stories of Australian heroism. Braveheart, The Patriot, some of those, <laughs> some of those films. Um so what about movies and or documentaries? Any any of them that you love? Oh, yeah. I tend not to watch too many uh, warry type movies these days, to be honest. I, I don't know why that is exactly. Probably the last one that, that I watched and really enjoyed was that Zero Dark Thirty. And I, I think that one resonated with me for the for the portrayal of that raid uh, on bin laden's compound I, I i felt that that was as accurate a portrayal of of what a real uh kill capture type operation looks like it, it wasn't it wasn't the hollywood version of the kick the door in shoot everyone in the face happens in 15 seconds everything's resolved and high fives it was it was confusing and clunky and you know somewhat awkward and things went wrong and there was there was miscommunication or I I I felt that they that's how I remember it anyway it's a while since I've seen it but I remember being uh, impressed by the accuracy of how they portrayed a what is a very confusing and complex situation so yeah I I enjoyed that movie uh overall but particularly for that reason it seemed to me to be from what I'd seen the most accurate interpretation of what that situation is actually like brilliant well speaking of amazing people is there a person or are there people that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world yeah, look, I reckon, I mean, I mentioned his book just before, but Mark Wales has got a great perspective on a lot of this stuff. So career SAS officer and and then has done some quite incredible stuff post SAS, including uh, being on Australian Survivor, the TV show, and winning a series of that. He's um, He's done an MBA over at Wharton there in the US, so Ivy League MBA started a, a fashion line called Kill Capture that makes high-end leather jackets in the US uh, out of New York's fashion district, but using Australian kangaroo leather. And so it's just a super interesting, enthusiastic guy, hell of a nice bloke, uh, but also has has a fantastic perspective, has has done a lot of reflecting on his time, uh, which includes, and he tells the story in the book, uh, the loss of a very close mate of his uh, in a, a contact that he was involved in and, and the effect that that had on him. So I think, yeah, he, he's a 
he'd be a bloke that would be well worth having on. Brilliant. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? You talked about the contrast therapy. Are there any other things that you use? Uh, yeah, the mindfulness and meditation piece. So I I uh, have gotten right into that over the years. I, like a lot of people, I wax and wane. There's times where I'm really diligent and, and do it daily and do it well. But the one particular system that I reckon is worth mentioning here, it's called NUCALM, N-U-C-A-L-M, and it's a group out of the US. I became aware of this through some contacts that were uh, ex uh, U.S. Special Operations guys, and and so became plugged in with this, and and had some discussions with them around it, and and uh, the the people who founded the company and the science behind it. But it's basically a um, a, a system of of layered sound. So it's got these soundscapes, and it's it's all this proprietary sort of soundscape stuff. It's underpinned, as I understand it, by a thing called binaural beats. So pumping different frequencies into each ear, and then your brain has to reconcile that, which taps into certain neural networks that that underpin this system. And it's sort of uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's almost like it, it, these sounds bully your brain into a meditative state. It's 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 like nothing I've ever had before, and and they it, it, with the system comes this electromagnetic disc that you put on a a, a, a um, what I understand to be a, a Chinese pressure point on the inside of your wrist wrist. I can't quite get my head around the science behind that, but but I still wear the disc every time I use the system. And and I found this thing really works for me. It's a a really uh, interesting experience that I have when I when I go through one of these sessions, which go for 20, 30, 40 minutes, depending on which setting you put it on. And I find after that that it really quietens my mind. It, it almost seems to completely, for a period of of up to hours, switch off that default mode network, that monkey mind, that ruminating loops of thought. And so there's something going on there that that I like uh, and I use regularly. So, yeah, and and, and I think some uh, there's a, 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 a good chunk of US sporting teams using this thing. Uh, I can't remember if they – it might be that they're in with the FBI and and so – but these high-end US organisations have embraced this system. But you can you can look it up. It's all on the website. But, yeah, Newcom is – is one that I think is quite interesting. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. I think I've had one person mention that before, so I'm going to have to look into that, maybe even get someone from there on the show. So you've told us where to get the books. Obviously, if we're in Australia or New Zealand, I'm going to be in there for 12 hours. Maybe I can see if I can get copies brought to the airfield when we're there or find a Barnes & Noble or the, you know, the similar bookstore close to where we're going to be. Um, but where else online can people find you, whether it's on website or social media? So I'm probably most active, well, I am most active on uh, Instagram and LinkedIn, just as Dan Pronk. I also have got a, a website, danpronk.com, that um, that's it's pretty primitive. So don't uh, don't don't uh, don't judge me on my IT skills there. But it's just a, a place to to host my blog, basically. And there's a there's a little online shop there and those sort of things. So the the gunshot wound course will be available through that uh, website. And so, but yeah, Instagram, LinkedIn, and danpronk.com. And the gunshot course can be accessed internationally. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that'll be available. And and the goal is to have that 
that ready certainly by the time this goes to where uh, you know it'll be it'll be there so go you can go looking for that brilliant well dan i want to thank you we've been chatting for another two hours um the first conversation was phenomenal um here we are again but i mean all yeah the the knowledge that you brought whether it's the mental health and resilience side or the trauma medicine side has been invaluable once again i've learned a huge amount myself so i just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today Oh, it's a pleasure. Look, thanks for having me on again. It's great to reconnect.